I'm Mark Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Today's guest is Robert Wiest, CEO of MS Re. After a long and distinguished career in both insurance and reinsurance, much of which was spent at Swiss Re, Robert took on the CEO job at MS Re in September 2022. With prominent career roles in both PNC and Life, in Europe and Asia, Robert is an extremely well-travelled and well-rounded professional, and this broad experience shines through the podcast. Robert is comfortable on any subject, and he's the sort of person with whom anyone could strike up a rapport. MS3 has rebranded and reset the image it wishes to project out into the market, and because of that, we talk a lot about this mid-sized reinsurer's strategy, appetites and growth plans. It's clear from this meeting that the business has a strong idea of how to differentiate itself and maximise the benefits of the fertile reinsurance markets of 2024. But we also talk in detail about long-term big-picture topics as far-ranging as market digitisation, artificial intelligence and how the industry should be attacking the problem of ensuring the transition to net zero. Robert's definitely one of us and is very generous with his insights. Listening back, this encounter is packed with the learnings of a distinguished career and buzzes with the energy of someone with unambiguous ideas and lots of experience, combined with the time and clear opportunity to execute upon them. Robert's clearly enjoying his new role, and I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Enjoy the podcast. Robert, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much, Mark. Nice to be here. Oh, it's really great. Lovely, sunny, crisp winter's day. For anybody who doesn't know you, Robert... Why don't you just do a really brief introduction, sort of tell us a bit about your career today and how you got to where you are. Okay, challenge going to be brief. <laughs> Robert Wiest, CEO of MS Reinsurance. I'm working almost 30 years in the reinsurance industry. I still love it and I don't think that will change. By education, I'm an electrical engineer. Wow. So I ended up in a totally different industry. I was plugging all the bits and pieces here and Yes, so now I understand that it wasn't just passing interest in, in the technology, you actually understand how it works. Yeah, absolutely. Despite having moved into a totally strange industry like reinsurance, I maintained my technical geek thing. Good, good. Tell us more. I started off as an underwriter, engineering underwriter, actually. Then I took over responsibilities in the special line field. Then I took over market responsibilities, so continental Europe mainly, non-life and then added the life part to it. And then I moved 10 years to Asia. So I built up the business in China. And who were you working for then? Back then it was Swiss Re. So I did 26 years in Swiss Re. So kind of a Swiss Re child. <laughs> and stayed 10 years in Asia for Swiss Re, moved back to Zurich. And then since two years, I'm running MS Reinsurance. In our industry, isn't it? There's either the sort of the University of Swiss Re or the University of AIG. Most people have been to both <laughs> at some point in their career. Definitely. I mean, at the end of the day, sometimes jokingly, I'm referring to actually it's one company just branded with, uh, <laughs> I don't know, hundreds of different names, but the, the pool is the same, it's the same amount of people. Absolutely. So you're the CEO of MS Re. You rebranded as MS Re about a year ago. What's the reaction been from the market? The reaction was very positive more positive than I anticipated because it, it addressed one item which was very unclear. As you know, the Amlin Group consisted and still consists of various entities historically. Yeah. But over time, the Amlin Group disappeared. It doesn't exist anymore. So there is the Lloyd Syndicate, yeah. Amlin Underwriting Limited, there's MS Reinsurance, and there's a primary insurance company headquartered in Belgium. 
and they all carried the Hamlin name, but had different business models. And with the rebranding, we tried to address that. And to a large degree, I would say we achieved that. So with the branding, what's, I'll start sounding like a marketing person. What's that identity that you want to project out there to people? When a broker's walking down the road, what do you want them to think of when they think of MS3? That's the message which we brought back actually to the brokers. And I have to admit, it works pretty well. So you see it in the name, we do only reinsurance. We don't do anything else. It's just reinsurance. We are portfolio reinsurer, meaning we go to a sedent via the brokers and say, look, we're interested to work with you across the board. We're also interested to stay with you for a period of time, more mid to long term, not short term. So we're not optimizing individual lines of business. We optimize the portfolios. And that's it. Very simple. So not opportunistic. You don't want to say, oh, great, you know, DNO is good this week. Um, I'll be in that and, and I'll be out of it next year. That's not our business model. For us, we have two layers of underwriting in a sense. One is we underwrite the sedent. Are they strong in underwriting? Do we like their philosophy to approach the business? And then within that, of course, we then optimize still on the technical underwriting side. But within the limit of we want to work with that sedent. So you're trying to find really good sedents who you can grow along with them. You support their growth. Exactly. They look after you because they're good underwriters and they're good at what they do, and you work together that way. So you spend a lot of time analyzing a lot of companies and then trying to pick the ones that, that you really want to work with. And then I suppose, presumably, once you've found the ones you really want to work with, you have to then go and convince them that they should be working with you. Uh, yes, that's then the last part of the chain. But Mark, you're absolutely right. That's our philosophy. Does that limit your ambition in some way? Or I suppose the ambition's only limited to how quickly those students can grow themselves and grow profitably, I presume. Mark, you're touching upon a very important point to me personally, because when I joined them as reinsurance, after the third day, someone popped up and said, so what do we do now? <laughs> and I was sitting there and said, yeah, actually, what do we do now? Why are us clients giving a company like us business? I came from a very big company and obviously, you know why clients are giving them a business. And we came up then with our strategy and one of that is Make it easy to interact. Know your client. So what you just mentioned, analyzing clients, who is actually a client who's fitting your own philosophy. So these two pillars are two pillars of our strategy, ease of doing business and know your client. And I suppose in my experience, the reason we have large insurers work with large brokers and with very large clients, of, you know, Fortune 500 clients, very large insurers buy from the very, very large reinsurers with huge panels all centralized globally. Presumably, you're not wanting to play in that arena. Is it naturally that you're a medium-sized reinsurer, so therefore, are you seeking out medium-sized insurance companies that you want to work with or where you can be a meaningful supplier to them? Yeah, so... You know, rather than someone who's just chipping yep. in 2%. Quickly coming back to your prior question, what is the limit of the business model which we yeah. are running? There's actually no limit. The limit is dictated by the time dimension you apply. So we have defined, for example, we have a five-year strategy. Actually, by now, it's three years left. And this is what we can do in that time. If you expand the time horizon, you can grow quicker than that. So to your last question, we don't have that client segmentation. So actually some of the large accounts are what you would call the global clients. We're well positioned there. So you see, if you would look into our portfolio, the full bandwidth, small ones, mid-sized, large clients. It's a bit of everything. A bit of everything, which fits the definition of a portfolio reinsurer. We are 
at a much smaller scale than some of our very large peers, but we are present in all aspects as well. So that ambition, for example, you've got quite a clean structure, which is great, but then does that limit your growth in some way or are you looking to open new platforms in, in different places or the sort of thing, if you find there are certain customers that you can't really access unless you have a platform in a certain place, would you therefore, would it be your clients that bring you to those new platforms or are you automatically seeking those platforms out so that you can get the client? Sorry to interrupt the podcast. I'm here to tell you that Aventum Group is a debt-free, owner-managed specialty insurance group headquartered in London. Through our MGA platform Rockstone and broking platform Concilium, the group controls circa $1.5 billion in gross-ridden premiums across 16 global offices. The group is employee-owned, has no private equity backing, and is very much in control of its own destiny. Synergy is Aventum's partnership model, a platform for entrepreneurial brokers and underwriters to become shareholders in their own subsidiary. A platform that liberates trading teams from bureaucracy and admin and allows them to focus on developing and servicing clients. We believe the traditional employee-employer hierarchy is outdated, which is why our Synergy model is built upon trust and partnership, and why all our Synergy arrangements involve real equity ownership from day one, very different to the management incentive plans or MIPS that are now so common in our market. We are not a corporate organization, and instead pride ourselves on the entrepreneurialism of our team and ability to have fun along the way. Our view is if you want to build something to call your own, have the lead on how you do it, and create some meaningful value along the way, a Synergy partnership will give you an unrivaled route forward. For more information, please contact us at voi at eventumgroup.com today. So the answer to your question is yes, definitely. But we are very much aware of the cost of infrastructure. So for us, the approach is a combination of using technology. So we have a very heavy digitization program. Uh, there's a lot of components also of artificial intelligence embedded, which actually is already in production. So it's quite interesting to see what you can do and what you cannot do it becomes very quickly apparent. And with that, we can increase our reach, but where we need, and I can openly tell Asia, for example, is one of the areas where we are not really present. And therefore, we're actually also missing the physical platform. So that's a consideration which we have to take. So it's a mixture between these two components. I think you're right to say that it's something to be cautious of, isn't it? It's been, not to say it's not the graveyard, but it's sometimes having too many platforms for your size. Obviously, it drags on your expense ratio, doesn't it? Oh, it definitely does. I mean, we have in our strategy an explicit goal on the expense ratio, which is significantly lower than our peer group. But we know that we can only achieve that if we are much more efficient than our peer group, which then brings you back to the technology piece. And you are conscious on where you invest in bricks and mortar, to use a different expression. So to finish this one up, in terms of platforms, you're not ruling them out, but at the same time, you try and get the scale first and then get the really imperative reason to say, well, actually, we really do need to be local now. Yes, that's the approach. If you see it tomorrow, then we would do it immediately. But the sequence is exactly as you said. And so it's interesting being a portfolio, underwriting the sedent type reinsurer. So you wouldn't say you're a specialist in anything. You say I'm a generalist, but as you say, oh, you're really react. But actually, of course, we are specialists in a few things. Or that- uh, we are. It seems you have studied us very carefully prior to this podcast. You know? So if you look at our strategy, the big part of it is the portfolio reinsurer. 
But then we have a second layer added, which says, well, actually in some areas, which follow a bit what I call the fashion cycle in our industry, we do want to offer particular services and want to be above average good. At the moment, this is cyber, agriculture, financial lines. And we're constantly scanning. So for us, it's very important to understand what are the future trends, the fashion cycle of tomorrow in our industry, so that we are ready then to offer the proper services to get the right revenues whenever the time is up. I've never heard anyone use the word fashion in reinsurance. Uh, there is. I'm, <laughs> I'm utterly convinced there is a fashion no, I, cycle. Well I, well, I certainly agree with you, certainly in terms of journalism. You know, think we, we go through different cycles. Yep. There's those sort of questions that two years ago I would have had to put an ESG question on my list of questions. And this year I probably would have put an AI one. I've surprised myself by doing something about net zero this time. But um, I can see, yes, these things ebb and flow, that the interest in them ebbs and flows. And AI was probably the hot thing. It probably, it's yep. just about peaks and it's probably going to be less hot at some point. But anyway, you're part of a business that has been built by a lot of acquisition, a Japanese acquisition strategy to diversify from being a very large dominant player in, in, in a local market to produce a globally diversified business. So could M&A be part of your own strategy? It is part of our strategy. The question is more, when do you want to activate it? So we're actively scanning markets for opportunities, like any professional company should do, who has M&A on the radar screen. For us, it is part of the strategy, so we do that. But with the current market cycle, it's not the priority. It's not the time, is it, right now? It's not the time, because you have a good market, so focus on getting as much business, good business, as long as you can. But you have to prepare yourself. So when we see you buying something, we know the market's not so good. <laughs> it depends on the situation. Who knows? Who knows? No, no, absolutely. Things change. Things oh, change. Absolutely, there, there's yes. Suddenly there are rationales. And also things are not for sale at the moment, so you can't buy anything anyway. No. I mean, that's a challenge <laughs> in our market. Maybe less visible, but there's a strong consolidation that has taken place. Then depends in which size league you are. And you have a fundamental question. Do you want to be the company who picks up a lot of small pieces or do you want to be the company who picks up one big piece? Either of them currently is pretty limited. Yes, you're right. There's nothing to buy. So you can't buy when there's nothing for sale and you have to buy when things are available. And that's just the way it is. And that's just obviously a part of the fashion cycle. There's not much we can do about it. We yep. can't change it. We have to live with it. Obviously, well, we're in the middle of a very interesting market. Things seem to have calmed down a little bit, which is good. But from a very good place, I presume, you must be very happy as a reinsurer to where we've managed to get. How has this affected your strategy? Presumably, you have very good access to capital um, when yes. you can make a case to the head yep. office, I presume. Yep. So maybe you're not affected by in the same way that you know uh, a more traditional reinsurer might be affected by retro and other things. How are you approaching this market? Presumably... It's a good time to grow. I mean, I presume you're growing faster than you would otherwise be. Certainly. I mean, you can flip it around. If you are a reasonably well-managed reinsurer, if you're not making money now, then something is awfully wrong. Absolutely. I think we have two differentiators working for us right now, other than only the market condition. One is the capital side you mentioned. Relative to our peers, capital is not our problem. If we can depict a good case which currently you can. You can get it. We have it. So that's not my concern, but that's a differentiator. Retro, we reduced our retrocession, not because it costs much more, well, it has reduced in the last renewal, as you know, 
but because we don't need it anymore, because we have diversified our portfolios in a much better way, and we have access to capital. The other one is very simple, falls into the same category, but it's the MS part in our branding, Mitsui Sumitomo. So our clients know that we have a mid to long-term view. Our shareholder has a mid to long-term view and a more conservative approach to a business philosophy. So you've used this hard market to get access to some of the business that you weren't able to access before because you've got capital and you have the appetite to use that capital. Yes. And therefore you've come out with a much bigger and and more diversified and therefore healthier portfolio. Absolutely, yes. And to your point about the strategy, how that has impacted the strategy, it hasn't impacted the strategy in a sense of changed. It has proven that our defined strategy is actually working. Where we do have a certain luxury challenge is that we are now almost two years ahead of our plan because the market has changed in a positive way. So we could, with all the work which we have done, get more business in than we originally planned, which was before the change in the market. So is that something you're deciding now or have you made your decision? Are you going to push harder now that you have more opportunity? We have a good plan. The plan has been confirmed. We got lucky in a sense because A, we were ready to execute. We had the capital, so therefore we could accelerate it. Not because we're smarter than others, just because the market has changed. So we continue pushing. We just continue pushing. I should probably give a name check to Charlie Goldie. He was was the first person in the quite monumental Monte Carlo of 2022, not this year, which was a bit calmer. He was the first person saying, look, I've got capacity and I'm willing to use it, but I'm trading it for access to other business that no one's been showing me for a long time. And I would like to see it. So that's worked. And that has worked like a charm. And the important part, and that statement plus the execution of it played out until even this renewal. Because the feedback we got was after the disruptive renewal, let's call it this way. Look, you were one of the few reinsurers who were consistent. You told us in Monte Carlo what you're going to do. You executed it. And relative to a lot of other competitors who said something and then behaved differently, you just did what you said. That was your luxury because you knew your capital was in place. So you could, was, well, I course. think a lot of those reinsurers didn't know where their own retro was exactly. going to be. And so they couldn't really. Yep. Not until the last minute. Absolutely. So this this statement from Charlie back then carried much more weight than we thought at that moment. Yes, it's always interesting. You know, I have a cycle now that I've done this for for two years is uh, obviously interview everybody at Monte Carlo and then pick up at the 1-1 with the brokers and then see what actually happened. The biggest takeaway perhaps from 1-1 was that certainly at the very highest on the high layers, very remote layers and catastrophe, things really calmed down. Uh, A willingness to deploy capital, plenty of capital and a, a happiness with the terms and therefore a bit of uh, signing down and you know a bit of uh, overplacing coming back. Anything else happening? And perhaps the other story there was some, on the casualty side of things that the difference between what people were saying at Monte Carlo and what ended up happening seemed to be that was more of a breaking point from some reinsurers. What they were saying at Monte Carlo and what they ended up doing was very, very different. Or there was quite a healthy market. It seemed obviously natural to have a difference of opinion. You can't really ever have a casualty renewal without having a difference of opinion because you're talking about things with very long tails. <laughs> That's very and of true. Course, you know, just a two degree, <laughs> yes. two, two degrees over here. Yeah. So it's a bit like you know, you're crossing the Atlantic and if you, you have an error of half a degree, you end up in the completely the wrong country. Yeah. By the time you get all the way across the Atlantic or even worse with the Pacific. So it's a bit like that with casualty, isn't it? But yes. What was your takeaway from 1-1? So if you look into the time pre, so very big picture, it was clear that you had two or three topics. 
So one was the U.S. casualty piece. So what's finally happening with that market? The other one, it was apparent that continental Europe, the cat property market, it hadn't really responded that well in the prior renewal to the changes. And that became evidenced by this secondary parallel event, so the hail flood. So it was clear that in continental Europe, that piece has to move. Yep. I leave out Turkey, which saw a significant increase. That was clear as well. So the U.S. cat market, it was apparent it will be inflation plus a little bit more and pretty calm. Big question, casualty. And to be very honest, I still don't know where we are in that area. <laughs> some areas have moved, some have not moved, but... It seemed the market cleared. There's a natural difference of opinion, but there were two yeah. camps, some who are happier than others, and it's just yeah, the way what, life is. What, what I would say, overall, it's certainly in a better place than before the renewal. Big picture. Okay, fine. Are all the question marks solved there? No, I don't think so. There's still too many court cases running post-corona, so there's a cleanup phase taking place there. But overall, I would say, yeah, most probably a better place. Europe has responded reasonably well. Traditionally, it doesn't go up 40-50% like in the US on the cat side. I think it's certainly also in a better place. So draw the line. Am I happy with the renewals? Yes. A, we got what we planned for. B, we saw the increases where we expected them to come through. Maybe not as strong as you would have hoped for. But then to be fair, a lot of us were biased by the prior renewal. And we have to admit that is an exception. In my almost 30 years of renewals, I haven't seen such strong price increases at that scale. So that's clearly exception. It's not a reference point. So this was a normal renewal. The markets which had to respond responded to it. We could have hoped for a little bit more, but given where we are, it is a very good renewal. Yeah, we're in a good place. Yeah. And as all the 2023 results are processed from reinsurers, it's undeniably a good place for almost everybody. Yep. So any sign of increased competition, potentially, we've had a few announcements of potential new capital coming in, full capital formation. We've had, of course, yep. capital coming in to incumbents, either directly through equity or through the ILS market or sidecars and all the different channels that now exist for capital to access our business. Any signs that this is sort of the high watermark? That's what the broker said, by the way, but then it's not fair yeah, that yeah. Of course, brokers are bound to say that. It could be when I was talking with Charlie on the 1st or 2nd of January, my question was exactly that question. And I was mentally already looking for the next renewal. Yeah. So just a year ahead, because this one, we know what it is. I don't think it was the high watermark, but the next renewal will be, if nothing happens, so no market disruption, no major cat catastrophe, Yeah, the next one will not be too far away. There's no reason to believe it will drop significantly, but there's also no reason to see it will grow significantly. For that, you need a market shifter. Yeah. So big cut event, financial markets, major moves. But you can also see in this year, it's not going to be an easy year, right? First of January, we got a quake. Inflation actually comes back. Now, we all know it's expected, but you see in the reaction of the financial market that that blip back up was not priced in. So there's nervousness in the market. And then we have the geopolitical situation, which we all know is not an easy one. So there are quite a lot of some uncertainties there. So my guess is... It's a normal year. It will keep. It's, we are certainly in the flattening, in the flat part. So like in sort of mountaineering terms, you've, you've come to this big peak, but actually 
you were expecting it to be more of a plateau. You've come up to this new high plane and you're going to hopefully stay camped up there for as long as you possibly can. Yeah. Not peak and then come whizzing down the other side. Uh, that, that I don't think so. It's a good, it's a good <laughs> way to describe it. I think we are on this plateau and as a reinsurer, I think the plateau is one year more and the rest is crystal balling. But we are certainly not anymore in the peak. When we were talking about geopolitical instability. Now, the second renewal on from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is it still affecting markets, some of those specialty markets? Well, you have still a big question on aviation. Yeah. So that's the follow-up. It's filtering through, isn't it? It's started yeah. to settle. Yeah, it's starting to settle. So there's nothing new, to be honest. Uh, it's all follow-ups. Whether it's political violence area, nothing really big has come through there. Aviation, follow-up. What I could see is creating an impact if it escalates. Then you're talking about a totally different scenario. Other than that, we are where we are, and that's the situation. Sort of stable within, obviously, a class that is never particularly stable. So it's, yeah. We were talking about taking away volatility. This is really is the yeah. hard edge of volatility removal, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. You were talking about technology, about your own investment, in your own technological platforms. And obviously, you're not an outlier. The whole of our industry is doing this. And it seems for the first time we're getting to a point where we may have a fully digital value chain. We don't know exactly when it's going to come, but I think we can probably get to the point where no one is ever going to say that it's never going to happen. Whereas 20 years ago, I'm sure plenty of people, particularly here in London, would have said, oh, it's never going to happen. I'm going to still be eating my slip. I'll still be placing business on my slip. And of course, now people need to almost be forced to go and place business yep. in Lloyd's these days. You know, So those seedants that you're working with, the ones that you, you know, your really preferred partners, presumably, they're also on the same technological journey as you. Where do you think this is going to lead us when we have a fully digital value chain? How's it going to change things? I can see three elements where it plays out. First, hopefully, and I'm pretty sure there will be an impact, how big we'll have to see, it will address the inefficiency of our industry, which is appalling. If you start with 100% premium paid by you and me for your car insurance, the reality is when it comes down to the reinsurer, there's only 80% left, 70% left. So we're eating up between, let's be generous, 15 to 30% just by doing our stuff. That's very inefficient. So efficiency, which you ultimately on a corporate level, you see an expense ratio. Second thing is then translating that into what does it mean for a company? What does it mean for us is automation in the heavy processing part. So that's middle and back office, technical accounting, claims handling. And you will see it in the improved quality of decision-making, that's underwriting. Underwriting, you will not see so much efficiency gains, but I would certainly expect an improved core decision-making. So you should come back into a better loss ratio? It should come back on a better loss ratio. But I suppose then competition will probably evaporate that loss there ratio. There you go, there you go. <laughs> because we should not be fooled by, if everyone has the same tools, yeah, well, your differential disappears over time. So there is an element of first mover advantage with the risk associated to it, but mid to long term, it will evaporate. I suppose it's only occasionally in a hard market, as a reinsurer, you get to ask for more information and you, because your capacity is in demand, you actually get more information. This is probably now the first hardening phase that we've had with technology enabling things. Did you see a benefit there? Did you, because obviously you can demand more information and you will get it because people want your capacity, need your capacity, and they're going to do the things you're asking. Whereas in a softer market, it's like, well, don't ask for all that stuff because otherwise you're not even going to get a look in. Did you see that benefit the first time you got much more data than you would normally have? 
partially, I would say, but then there's a, a more philosophical remark. I will come back on that then. So partially, yes, in our case, was limited by the capability to digest these data because we're still rolling out our transformation yeah. program. Because it's all very well getting it. If you can't process it yourself, then why exactly. bother asking for it? <laughs> exactly. Where's the platform? Where's the tool to really do the data mining? But here's my more philosophical remark. If everyone is getting more information and a more transparent view on the underlying risk, you're actually shooting at something which drives our business, the uncertainty. Yeah. If I know exactly what's going to happen, who's willing to pay me the premium? Yes. Once you fully know your unknowns better, then you probably really appreciate your reinsurer a bit more when you realize how much risk they've been assuming, probably blindly. Yeah. So my view is more data is good. <laughs> Getting the ultimate holy grail of, I know everything is bad for us. But yes, if everybody knew that the house was going to burn down tomorrow, then they, obviously they would get the insurance, make sure that the insurance was fully in place beforehand. But then you wouldn't want to insure it, would you? Yeah, what well, there you're talking about information arbitrage. So I would like to have the same information and then I wouldn't insure the house anymore. And so yes, but the one thing is we don't know any information about the future yet. In the world of quantum physics, we can maybe look into the future, but I'm not sure. We'll leave that to clever people like you, Robert. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> maybe not. It's not electrical uh, engineering, know, is it? I'm, I'm sure I'm not around anymore when it comes to <laughs> a molecular level and subatomic yeah. level. Yes, maybe. But um, what about AI? I, you're getting a lot of these big data. You've built the lakes and the data's flowing into them. Presumably, you're going to be using the technology now available to start really making sense of it. So we do have the data lakes already. So the infrastructure we have already in place, we're actually using AI. At this point in time, in the middle office, technical accounting claims area to address the efficiency points, which I just mentioned. Yeah, We're not yet using it on the underwriting part. But we have the technical capabilities to absorb huge amounts you of data. That. And you're planning to use it? Uh, yes, definitely. Definitely. You were talking about obviously improving the skill of the underwriter. Presumably you can improve the productivity of an underwriter, one presumes, if you can triage yes. their day, you can make them underwrite more profitable business more quickly. Yeah. So what we know, based on what we have looked at and done in the middle office space, we know that we can drive up efficiency. However, it is not a case where you get a black box, you switch it on and it works. It takes actually time to tune those machinery to get what you aspired for, the efficiency. Now we know that we can use the same technology also in the underwriting space and addressing exactly that processing component. So we can increase productivity in the underwriting space. What we don't know yet is whether we can improve the quality of information. So we know that we can take a lot of information, filter it out and provide it as a starting point to the underwriter. Yeah. What we don't know yet, how much of that piece, so the decision-making part, where today you need an experienced underwriter, yeah. you can actually substitute with the machine. There, I'm more skeptical. I'm sure somebody will try it, you see. And well, absolutely. They are somebody will do already. really well and somebody will do yeah. really badly. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> These are all stories of the future, which yeah, is yeah. good. And obviously, somebody who's good at analyzing portfolios, analyzing whole companies, obviously, we've had some experimentation with AI-assisted portfolio underwriting here in London yeah. in the Lloyds market. Does that have any interest to you at all? Obviously, it's very efficient, as long as it works. It, it does. Again, as I mentioned, at the moment we are building the whole thing up. Some areas we have deployed it. Underwriting is coming only. It's a topic for us most probably into the next year. Still need to finish some steps. But yes, it absolutely is. Where I see even more usage of it is not so much at the underwriting stage. 
but then in your own portfolio analysis. What are correlations of the various portfolios? Do we have our diversification component, which is a factor in your solvency calculation? Yeah, of course. Is it sitting right? Small changes just to that parameter make a huge difference on your return on capital, for example. So getting more insights, for example, in that space is for a reinsurer very interesting. You mentioned cyber before. Cyber seems to be coming through a really interesting sort of maturity phase. At our level, at this reinsurance and ILS level, we have a few cap bonds. Is it really a sign that reinsurers at the very high end are becoming more comfortable with the way that this risk is being analysed and understood? Because you're being asked to cover big events, i.e. that we've got a better idea of what a big event is and how it's defined, and that we understand how big it's likely to be, and therefore you can therefore commit capital to it at the right price. Mark, I like your statement, we better understand. Well, I'm, I'm old enough to know that an event is something the lawyer loves spending lots of time defining. Uh, yeah, definitely. Many years after the event. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> a big money-making machine. <laughs> then, yeah? But overall, I think, yes, it is a sign of a maturing market. There is one layer overshadowing that, which is the last renewal and the cat situation. So that has driven quite a lot of investment interest into enterprise years, of course, so that fundamentally you get no return for the money you invested in any cat bonds. So that drove also an additional flow into what else is around. And cyber is certainly of the same catastrophic dimension as a cat risk. And hopefully so it, it doesn't correlate. It doesn't correlate. Well, it really shouldn't. Well, difficult to see it shouldn't. <laughs> So there is an additional element driving to this maturity level. Then we're definitely moving out of the phase where your calculation of premium is based on a lot of, call it wake assumptions. There are no more models available. Are the models really stable on the same equality level as CAT? No, not yet. But you can see all the industry and also the players around it, it's moving into a mature territory, which then gives you more credibility, more comfortable for investors in the third capital market as well. But it's going to be a very long journey. And don't forget, so far we didn't have really this big systemic event most people are scared of. We got a zillion of smaller events. So it's still an interesting journey, but I think it's certainly maturing. But you take a bit more comfort, for example, if there are three or four different modeling firms out there, and they're using very different methodologies, and, they're, and now they're starting to converge around exactly. similar numbers, then yes. that's quite good. It's almost like a way of, you know, when you have a mathematical theorem, you, you then prove it by doing it another way. Absolutely. And yes. then that would give you more comfort. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's what we're exactly doing. We're looking at different models. We're looking at 200 data. We have strong partners. So you're absolutely right in pointing out that this is a market which is maturing. But certainly, we are way beyond the point of, is this market going to stay? That's an obvious answer. Yes, of course. And you're happy to be growing into that increased demand. Yes. I don't think people are talking about net zero quite enough, but that's just maybe that's just me putting something on the agenda because it was something we would have been talking about a lot three years ago when it was particularly more fashionable or whatever. I just want to ask you, you know, you're part of a global insurance group. What do you think we can do? It's very political as well, and, and I don't want to draw you into political conversation, but the net zero insurance alliance was something that has now been effectively disbanded. Yes because it, perhaps it was too political or perhaps you know, it was certainly it has been attacked by the political establishment in certain places. In that environment after this, what do we do now? What should we be doing now to help? Again, you said about cyber is not going to go away. We know ILS is not going to go away. 
Well, I don't think the climate change question is going to go away. It's just no. going to come in and out of fashion. I think we shouldn't underestimate the work which the Net Zero Alliance did and the results it achieved, which is defining a certain standard, topical areas, and also in some areas proposals on how to approach that. So I think that's very important to align the insurance industry. Then the effects which you mentioned came in and unfortunately it ended up where it ended up, but the topic is not the way. The task and the request to the insurance industry to provide effective solutions is not going to go away. And I think we will become an increasing pressure as an industry, not only the reinsurance, but also the insurance industry to step away from talking only about that and provide credible answers. And the only fig leaf we have today, I'm very harsh in my formulations here, is actually the cat insurance. But you talk about secondary perils, the problems start already. And the effects of climate change, they are going way beyond just two lines of business. So we still need to work very hard on what products are we really offering? Second one is, where do we draw the capacities? In my prior job, I worked partially in the public-private partnership sector. And I can tell you when you talk to governments, they look at the insurance industry and say, yeah, thank you very much. Interesting project, interesting proposal. But for the size of what we're talking about, your contribution is not that big. So we still need to work a lot. So Net Zero Alliance provided us a good platform to progress, but the major part of the work still needs to be done. Because otherwise, governments will go and do these things themselves. And we've just, Absolutely. just in the last few days, there was a California congressman has put a big Nat Cat style federal yep. backstop bill. Yep. I, I think it's pretty unlikely it's going to succeed. But then that's the direction of travel. If we don't step up and provide the limits that they want. Absolutely, yes. And, and it's interesting that you raise California because that is nice. So you can see that Florida, Texas is a slightly different angle to it. California, you can see how important it is to maintain the dialogue. Because if you don't bring something to the table, A and B, you don't maintain the dialogue, but you take a rigid position like, I'm not ensuring that anymore at all, then you trigger exactly the same behavior on the other involved parties. And that's not a good result. Actually, the other thing on net zero, do you think the way forward is standard so that disclosure, all of us, all of the insurance companies, all of the reinsurance companies are going to have to disclose sort of how much carbon they're insuring and all these things. If we can find a common industry standard for that, like, I don't know, like in digital photographs, we had a JPEG and that yeah. was finally, and it was like the joint picture engineering group decided they're going to stop competing with each other on different formats and then make a format that we all our phones and then our computers can use and we can finally share pictures with each other. What about something like that? Could we be able to create a sort of JPEG of net zero so we can all share um, our pictures with each other. I think eventually we will land on something like that. It will still take time. But if you just take a look at the ESG regulation coming up now yeah. in the European community, it elevates that topic also from a governance point to the same level like anti-money laundering, international trade sanctions. You will need to prove to your supply chain. So my retrocessionaires, as an example. Yeah my clients that I'm compliant with, in this case, ESG regulation. So there's much more drive coming into this whole thing. And we have to embed all of us this 
into the core of our business. There's no way around that. Well, I'm glad that we're talking about that because I just feel it's one of those topics that went off the boil and it's going to come back again because it's it's, going to come back with a challenge. So just to point out one example, big five years ago, everyone said we're not going to insure missiles, war material, whatever. So what do we do now in the current geopolitical situation where every country screams to increase production of this material? So it's a fluid topic, but it will stay and we have to be very close to it. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Mark, it was really a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.